Okay, so for the next two weeks, for the next two weeks, what we're going to be doing is spending a little bit of time kind of rounding out our series for the year on stewardship. And the topic is one that we've covered in the past. I'm going to kind of show you what we've done in the past and maybe move past it. So the goal is for the next couple of weeks to focus on stewardship and our role as stewards and then move into the Advent season and wrap up the year that way. All right? Why update a series on money that we already have done? We did it four years ago. It's hard to believe it's been four years. Now, of course, I know many of you have gone back and listened to this talk, and it's one of our most downloaded talks on the website. There's a couple reasons why I think we should talk about it again, but in a different way. So I'm not going to repeat the talk. We're going to kind of take that and, and kind of move into a different direction. So here's some reasons why. I think we should talk about it and update our original series. I've always maintained that Jesus knew that nothing is going to compete for our hearts as much as money. We know because when he set up the juxtaposition, he said in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. All right, we might accept the premise that no one can serve two masters, but he set it up this way. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why money? He could have said God and anything else, but he picked money. He's setting up one or the other using money because I think it's something that constantly tugs at our hearts. It's something that we have a big problem overcoming. So that's one of the reasons I think we need to come back to it. I think we need to refresh in our minds all the time the scriptures and teachings about money. You know, you've heard me say in the past that Jesus spent about 40% of his teaching time in some parable or teaching that related to money or possession or management of resources. That's a lot of time. The Bible contains 2,350 verses on money. That's more than almost any other subject covered in Scripture. Again, because it seems like it's the one thing that's going to compete for our time. So I think we should come back to it. In fact, if it were up to me, I guess it is up to me, but, <laughs> but like if we had our natural course, we should at least have a series or a talk on money at least once a year, if not once every six months. Because there's nothing that competes for our attention more. Third, just a practical reason. I, I don't think we're giving like we should be. We're going to look at that tonight and kind of talk about it. But one reason we should be doing this series and updating it is probably because we're not doing very well in this area. We're doing okay. But you'll see in a moment, I think we could do much better. And finally, how we spend our money is the best indication of where you're at right now. It's the best indication of what we really care about in this world. I say it's a spiritual litmus test. I say that because Jesus said that. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. What do you care about? Can you prove it with your checkbook? Can you prove it with where you put your financial resources? I would say that we say that we care about a lot of things, but we don't actually put much behind some of them. And the other things that we really care about, I can probably prove because that's where most of our money is going. All right? So those are the reasons I think we need to do this. Come back to it again. What's in our series on the website? Just so that you know, we did an intro and five sessions on a kingdom view of money. 
That is a much more detailed talk, but it focuses in detail on a couple of things. Budgeting, debt reduction, savings, investment. We focused on how to free up funds for the kingdom, how to cut certain expenses, how to learn to budget so that we could find more money, how to invest, how to save. We focused on some of those things using the time value of money to build wealth for the kingdom. So some of the themes we're going to talk about here, of course, we kind of covered, but I am not going to go into those things. And I would highly recommend that you go back, if you haven't listened to these talks, go back and listen to them because I'm kind of taken off from where they left off a little bit. There will be some overlap where we talk about giving, but for the most part, I'm not going to be talking about debt and budgeting and savings and investment. That's I'll leave for you to go back and do, but it's very important because there's some parts of that series that are very practical and they give advice as to how to do things. And a lot of us have questions like, well, how do I do that? Where do I find money? How do I free things up? We'll touch on them here, but the detail is included there and you should go back and pick them up. Okay, so just download them if you haven't listened to them already. So how are we doing with giving? Just kind of a checkup. How are we doing where we're at? Here's the statistics for Exodus so far. In 2008, about $10,500 for the year. It's not bad for a ragtag group of people meeting at Adams Hall, right? Not bad. Not bad. So far this year, by my count, we're about 10200 somewhere in that neighborhood. This includes giving to Kiva. It includes giving to World Vision, includes giving to Children of the Nations, it includes our giving campaign right now to raise money for our classroom. Last year's money also included money to buy the well, the deep water well that we ended up purchasing. So that's where we are. So here's some assumptions. Assuming for this year we get up to about 11,500, 11,500, that's kind of where we need to be to finish out our commitment on this classroom we're building. And assuming that we have the number of people that meet here every week and assuming we're meeting for about 50 weeks, what does that come out to? On average, we're donating about nine bucks every week. 38 bucks a month. That comes out to about $460 a year per person. Now, if we use the simple concept that we're tithing our income, that means that the average annual salary of a member in Exodus is $4,600 per year. <laughs> that means, on average, all of you make $400 or a month or less. $400 a month or less. What does this show about us? Well, I think the obvious is that we're probably not giving as we should. Now, let me be fair, though. Exodus is not really a church. So you may go somewhere else and you may be giving somewhere else. You may have a place that you call home and that you think, I'm giving to that church. All right? You may also be giving to ministries, missionaries, and all sorts of organizations that are not Exodus. And just to be absolutely clear, we've said it in the past, and I think everybody in this room knows it, but all the money that we get at Exodus doesn't go to us. We're just donating it right on to another organization. So you might be doing the same thing. So what we put into that red box in the back of the room may not be the sum total of what we're giving. But I also have a hunch that for some of us, that is the sum total of what we're giving. And the other bad news that I would make as part of an assumption that I think is probably we could document very easily, a number of people in this group are carrying the bulk of the giving, which means that the averages actually don't matter. 
it means that some of us are doing nothing in terms of giving, here or somewhere else, and others are doing most of it. Nationally, here's a statistic. Across the, the church nationwide, 20% of the people give 80% of the money. More shocking than that, in my opinion, is that 5% of the people give 60% of the money. A very narrow group of people. And there is a significant number, about 25%, who are just not even giving anything. <coughs> we need to look at that tonight and understand what our role is and what's going on. I understand some of us may be in tough circumstances, but I'd like to remind you about the widow who was in tough circumstances, who had two pennies and put them in to the offering plate, and that was everything she had. Brian. I uh, have a question. Like, you know, you don't have money, like, if you're giving money to the church by trying to help out and stuff like that, is that considered giving just not, is that like you don't money wise? I'm sorry, so your question is, is it like you're giving time but not money? I'm actually going to address that in a moment, so let me address that. That's a good question. Let me start with what our relationship should be with regard to money and our master. The relationship is stewardship. That's what the title of the talk is, but I want to make sure we understand that stewardship is a relationship. Like a lot of times we think of stewardship as giving. Like that's the same thing. Like we have a stewardship campaign. That means somebody's going to like raise money and put a thermometer outside the church and see how high we're going, right? Or we're going to try to raise money for a building and we call that a stewardship campaign. That actually to me is a misnomer. Stewardship is a relationship. It's where you are a steward of the master. What is a steward? It's understanding that we don't own what we hold in our hands and that we're only possessing it for the master. Another way to look at it is this way. Faithful and wise use of freedom and responsibility equals stewardship. That formula is very important. So faithful and wise use of freedom plus responsibility equals stewardship. The master gives us freedom and responsibility to steward his possessions. We get to possess them and hold them, but we don't own them. Everything belongs to the Lord. And that relationship is very important because I think that's where we first get tripped up. We first think of stewardship as giving, and we forget that everything we've been given belongs to him. And that kind of goes to your point, Brian, in a moment, because it's not just money. Although our talk is going to focus primarily on money, because for some of us, it's a little bit easier to give other things than it is to give money. But we're still to steward those things. Here's the definition. In Matthew 24, 45, Jesus asks, who then is the faithful and wise servant? The faithful and wise steward. And he defines who that person is. Whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time, whom the master has put in charge of everything he has to take care of them. Who is that person? That person is the steward. Now this question is very odd because it comes in answer to a question in Scripture. Jesus is basically leaving it open. Who among you is going to be a steward for me? Who among you will be faithful and wise and do what the master asks? And that's what I'm going to be asking you tonight. Who among us is ready for stewardship? I want to be clear. Stewardship does not equal fundraising. 
They're not the same thing. Stewardship is a relationship. Fundraising is something we like to do. The reason I bring that up early on is because every time we talk about raising funds, people immediately in our culture today zoom over to fundraising. Like, hey, we'd like to raise some funds to help build the school that we're doing right now in Malawi through Children of the Nations. And it's tempting to immediately say, well, let's put on a fundraiser. What's the difference between that? Fundraising is an activity. It may be part of stewardship, but it's not the same thing. I'd like to say that fundraising is not the primary way in which God wants us to get his mission funded. In fact, if you scour scripture, you won't find examples of fundraising. I can't find any. I can't find an example of somebody putting on a big dinner for somebody in scripture. Well, okay, there's some banquets, but not to raise funds for the mission. The primary way is through the relationship of stewardship. What does that mean in English? It means us working with what the master has already given us to fund the mission that he has given us. Not hoping that if we just put in some time or put some cookies out on the sidewalk or buy some donuts, that somebody will come by and fund our mission for us. That we'll use somebody else's money from the outside. Now, of course fundraising has a place. I'm not saying we should be no fundraisers in Christianity. But it's very tempting to always go there first. And I think the reason it's tempting is because we don't want to use our money. We want to use their money. We'll give our time. We'll put in some extra effort. And I think if you actually calculated all the time that goes into some fundraisers, unless they're wildly successful, I think if we just managed our money better and dug into our pockets, we would have come out better ahead. It's just my opinion. But I want to be careful that they're not the same thing. Stewardship is a lifelong relationship that outlasts any fundraiser. It's you using everything that you have for his purposes and managing them well. That's stewardship. Now, Brian's already asked, what about other things? Look, I don't mean to say that stewardship equals money either. Because we have other things that we steward. These are just an example of other things that we have. So I believe we should steward everything that we have. Our time, the education that you've received or that you're working on, job, career, specific skills and talents, certainly those. You may have specific skills that you can give to the kingdom that might be worth more than money. Unique passions that you have that you can turn and steward for the master's purposes. In this country, we have an abundance of wealth and opportunities, an abundance of relationships that we can leverage and steward. We even steward scripture and the time that we spend learning. Even the time we spend here on Sunday nights is something we steward. That's why we begin every series with justifying why we should spend any time on this, because the time belongs to God, even the time we spend studying the scriptures. Because if we're not doing it well enough, we should just close the book and go serve. At least we'll get something done. The gospel is something that we steward. We hold that in our hands. He's given that to us along with the Great Commission to take that to the ends of the world and also the work that goes along with it and serve. Like all those things we steward. But we're not doing a series on those things. You can get some of the same principles out of it as we go along, but I'm going to focus primarily on the stewardship of money because while we could do better in some of these things, I think the hardest place that we wrestle with and the one that Jesus set up in his juxtaposition is God and money. Because we have a hard time focusing on God and not money. 
So stewardship, faithful and wise use of freedom and responsibility. Where do I even get the freedom and responsibility? It's from the parable of the talent. So if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 25. We've seen this parable before. I think anybody who knows me knows this is probably one of my favorite parables in Scripture. We've been going through a long, lengthy series on Matthew, and probably another 10 or 15 weeks we'll get here. We'll probably be doing it again. Matthew has a lot to say about stewardship and responsibility, but here's the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Again. That's the first word, again. Again? Again, what do you mean again? Like, what, where, where's the beginning part? In context, if you go back to Matthew 25, verse 1, he's telling the parable of the ten virgins. And he says that at that time, it will be like this. Like, at what time? Like, we've got to go back even further. Go back to Matthew 24. And there you find at the end of Matthew 24 that Jesus is talking about the last days. He's talking about how it's going to happen without anybody really realizing it that it's going to sneak up on people. And then he tells the parable at the beginning of Matthew 25, saying, at that time, it will be like this. So when we get to the parable of the talents, and he says, again, we have to link it to those things. Again, meaning at that time, at the end time, that nobody suspects. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Do you see the stewardship? He took his property and entrusted it to his servants. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and another one one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said. You entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed? Well, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten talents, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
you guys know that in parable land, weeping and gnashing of teeth is not the place you want to end up. Yes? What is the part, I mean, was it saying, like, well, you're a hard man, like, you've gathered where you have not sown, or a hard thing where you haven't sown, gathered where you haven't spread seed, like, I, I don't really understand that. Yes, the servant is expressing fear that this is a hard man who's the master. So in one respect, some people look at that and say what the steward is parroting back or, or kind of pointing out is, basically, you work through all of us, and, and you seem to have no problem with taking what belongs to that back to you. Other people say, Jesus is actually saying that even a, a, a master who's harsh and is probably going a little bit outside the line. So people are kind of divide over what it really means. I think in either thing, what it does, in my view, is it shows that this steward may not have been like a bad person. Like, he may not have gone out and just spent it. Like, he didn't do a, like a prodigal son type thing where he went out and just wasted it, gambled it, you know, shopped with it. He just was scared or worried or unsure of what to do. So he just thought the best thing to do is do nothing with it. I mean, that way I can't lose it. I'll just give it back to him. That way there's no problem, right? He can't blame me for losing it. And that actually is a very significant fact in the parable, I think. All right. What are some of the things we get out of this? First, I want you to notice that it's the master who provides everything to the stewards. The master owns everything. He's the one that provides his property to them. That supports the idea that it's all owned by God to begin with. And he's making the same analogy. Like, of course, in the parable, Jesus represents that. He's like, I'm the master. I'm giving this to you to work with. He's the one that provides it. Second, there's an expectation that the stewards will invest the money and that they will make a return. So what we're struggling with already here is the one who didn't. It's very significant that they didn't. And it's also significant, I think, in the parable that they didn't lose it. But they just chose not to use it, to just kind of bury it. And that was considered evil by the master. And that's something we have to kind of think about. They're just hanging on to what we have and not using it for the master's purposes of producing a return is something that this person gets called evil for. Yes? So can this be translated to like spiritual gifts? Like if God gives you spiritual gifts and wants you to use it for the kingdom and you don't, like you go to hell for that? Well, first... I think it's fair to say that the parable is primarily about money, okay? And the reason that's true, just in case we're all, let's make sure we're on the same page, is a talent was a denomination of money, right? We all know that, okay? And when you come to parables to then take them outside of their first and primary meaning, you can get yourself into a little bit of trouble. We've always said how parables are like multi-layered and multi right. But I wouldn't build doctrine out of the multiple levels. I would look at the nuances and be kind of wowed by how Jesus' teachings work on several levels. Just like in this level, you could say this parable isn't limited to money. Yes? I wouldn't even be taking this parable and saying, let's make a theology of business trouble, uh, you know, grace through faith. That's the thing we should not do. It clearly is a warning text. And it does, I think we can take the point that we are held accountable for things God gives us, including gifts, all these things. So if you're not stewarding well this one gift, you are going to find yourself giving account before God and find yourself going to hell. Like That's a bad use of this parable. But we should understand the accounting aspect, the judgment aspect, and yeah, we're held accountable. It seems so hard. Like, you know, it should sound hard. How, how often does 
Jesus in the Bible end it with, and if you don't do this, they'll be you going to like where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, a, a number of times. That's what a warning passage is intended to do. It's intended to kind of warn you not to think it's too easy. For example, you know that, that Lazarus at the gate parable and the rich man, like the rich man, they have that reversal of fortune in the next life because he ignored Lazarus' plea for crumbs from his table, right? It's like there's nothing in there about salvation or faith. There's just that. We have the other passage in Matthew where he's like separating the sheep from the goats, right? Depending on what they did and how they cared and visited and clothed, right? Now, that doesn't mean, and I agree with Morgan, that doesn't trump the places where there's clear doctrine. And one of the rules of interpretation of parables is not to take it too far because it's an analogy that's given to explain a truth but not to encapsulate all truth into the parable. So when you start looking for every piece and this must symbolize this and this must mean that, we've gotten past what it was used for. Okay? So in this case, it is meant to show us one main principle which is what we are given, we are to invest and produce a return from and return it back to the master more than what he gave us to. And if we don't, there will be dire consequences. Randy. Is he even necessarily talking about hell right there? Like, because he doesn't say like eternal gnashing and weeping and gnashing the teeth. Because there's a part of the Bible, isn't there, where it's talking about the people who are saved as by fire? Weeping and gnashing of teeth is an allusion that's repeated by Matthew and others a number of times to signify a very, very bad place at a minimum, but some people believe it actually signifies that you're being cast out into the outer darkness or hell or the place that's, that's the equivalent of Jehenna. All right, but so it's not a good place and it's not just a kind of a timeout punishment place. It's much, much worse than that. But does it literally mean eternal damnation? People are split on that. Yeah. I struggle with it. Like, it's a very strange concept that I don't think most people hold to theologically in their other forms of life and their other like views on anything is that the money we have, all the money that I receive throughout my entire life, that all of it is given to me by God. Like I think I might hold to that, but I don't think most people in here hold to that. Like like and not like that I have like a different view, but more like in a sense of when we make choices and we have our free will and our free will determines the job we get and how much money we get, like stuff like that. And so I struggle with the idea you say, oh, well, because it is talking about talents and money, therefore, like, we have to start from that point. But we don't assume, like, the parable of the seeds, like, well, this must just be talking about seeds, like. Okay, well, first on the point about everything, we're going to actually cover that next week. Why we even get to a point that even what you think you are doing, like getting a job and all that, that it still is God's to begin with, okay? But we can even start with the premise, I mean, so I'll give you the short answer now. Psalm 24, 1 says, everything in the earth belongs to the Lord. James 1, 17, every good, perfect gift comes from the Lord. Like, everything comes from him. He's the source of all those things. And everything, including if you go back, we'll go through it. Like, it belongs to him. The reason I say this is primarily about money is because we miss the point about it. And we have, for a long tradition in our church, has tried to find other meaning in this parable. All right? But repeatedly, Jesus is talking about money and possession and what we do with it. The Sermon on the Mount has many passages that relate directly to how we're supposed to use what is given to him, right? Now, I have to be careful to say, like, is Jesus just talking about money to the point where he's saying at the end of time, what I'm going to do is just, just see how much money you made? No. But that's one of the things he's going to do. We can't exclude money from a parable that directly talks about money. That would be a strange interpretation of the parable. Jeremy? 
I think uh, I kind of agree with Phil, but I think in a maybe slightly different way in the sense that I think the main emphasis of the parable is on the activity of the servants and whether or not they were active or inactive. So, like, you might see the third servant as someone who's simply just not, I mean, either he's just not committed or because of this fear, you know, is driven to this kind of, just doesn't do anything, you know, it's just, it's, for whatever reason, is paralyzed into inactivity, whereas the other two, uh, presumably, could still be afraid. And maybe they're, maybe they do what they do out of fear, but they, they do something like so. The focus is for me. I've always felt is less on whatever the whether it's money or whatever it is, and the fact that they do something or they, they do what's asked of them, uh, and and they're rewarded for that. Okay, Jason. Um, I would partially agree with him just because the he says that he's lazy, like he doesn't. He doesn't just complain about the money, um, although he could complain that he didn't get his money back completely because with inflation, um, the money that he gave at the end is actually less than the money that he received. So by not using it at all, he, it actually loses value. Um, so that's one argument. But um, aside from that, it, he focuses on the fact that he doesn't do anything with it. He just hides it in the ground and ignores that he even had a command for him to act. And so, I mean, it is about money, but it's also about the fact that God asks them to do something with that money very specifically, you know. Okay, Monique? Yeah, I'm definitely on that same, like, idea, that same path with it, because what would be easier than cutting a check at the end of the week, honestly? Like, it's more terrifying maybe some people to walk down a skid row and feed people. Ew, that's gross, whatever. Or we talk about getting overwhelmed with with we don't even know where to start to get involved so we just don't or like you know what I mean like that makes more sense to me because like what would be easier than that like oh well I don't have to do this I don't preach I don't use the gifts God gave me but every month I cut a check to the church and went here take it you've actually hit the problem you've actually hit it dead on you think that there is nothing easier than cutting a check and that's a myth that we've all lived with for a long time the fact that people give so little shows that there's nothing harder than cutting a check. The parable is about producing return. You can't escape that the people produce return and they double the funds and they are rewarded. I think Jeremy's partially right about the action, but there's a specific action. It's producing return. And notice that Jesus, in telling the parable, there is no commandment that they produce return right from the start. He's saying he entrusted him with the property and went away. They know what they're supposed to do. That's part of the entrustment, is to maximize the resource. So you might say, maybe it's not money. And I would say, right, but we're in a conversation about money, so this parable is directly about maximizing resources. That's why I'm saying it relates to money. First, because a talent is a denomination of money. But that's why I would allow somebody to say, well, what about the maximizing and production of return on time? Yes. On your giftings, on your other things? Yes, because the parable is about the production of return. And the person who doesn't produce a return is told you could have at least earned interest on it. You could have at least gotten that return for me. Yes, he's lazy. 
but that's because the master knew what he was capable of. How did he know that he was capable of it? Because remember, he gave each servant according to their ability. The master knows what their ability is. He knows that this one gets five because he's more able than the one who gets two because he's more able than the one who gets one. So the parable ultimately comes down to we are supposed to produce a return. Is it financial only? No. But you can't escape that financial is the main point of the parable. And if you think that the parable doesn't operate on that level, that's one of the reasons I think we trip up on what are we supposed to be doing with everything we have. Let me finish these points and, and go through them. Here are the things I think are fair to pull out of this parable. Number one, it's the master providing the money. That's pretty easy. Number two, he does expect them to invest and produce a return. This is a parable about producing return. Three, I think it's very significant that the master gives people different amounts. He knows their ability. That's true. And that's why he's so upset with the one he gave one to. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think that sometimes we think that, well, when I make more money or when I have more things, or when I have more talents, or when I have more possessions, then I can really get active. I don't think there's any expectation, especially since this is a parable about the end, that Jesus has said again, when you least expect it, it will be like this. So you don't know when the end is, whether the end being Jesus coming back to make account with you or the end being just, you, you know, you got hit by a bus or whatever, you know, like whatever the end is. We don't know how close we are to the end. So he's not talking about some future point where the one talent steward goes, well, when I get five, I'll see what I can do with them. No, you had one and you work with what you've got. You produce a return with what you've been given now, especially because this is in the context of end parables. Freedom and responsibility, there's nothing in the parable that describes what they're supposed to do other than just the expectation to produce a return. And they're held responsible for not doing it. That's actually really important. The master comes to make account with the stewards. Now, no matter what you think, whether this is limited to money or it includes other things, how many of us think of Jesus coming back to make account with us? Like at the end of time, how many of us consider the concept of sitting before the master and making account with him? Paul takes the concept even further, talking about the rewarding of rewards based on the accounting we have with Jesus. Numerous times you know that Jesus says we're going to settle and, may, and, and I'm going to reward you for what you've done. And in this case, two of them get rewarded and one of them doesn't get rewarded. Again, I caution us taking the parable too far to say that means that person got sent to hell. That's, I don't think that's where it's going. But that is meant to be a grave warning that you are going to face Christ and say, this is what I did with what you gave me. And the what is not just money, but you can't throw money out. It includes everything he's given you. And again, the entire investment, everything, and what we produce belongs to him. And I'm going to make the case that it should be used for his purposes. Next week, we're going to see that word. We're going to come back to it over and over about where do we get the concept that like everything is supposed to belong to him. It makes sense in the, um, the just monetary sense. He was afraid of using up all of this money that was given to him and being like, okay, well, now I'm stuck. Like, and now I've got nothing. Like, but how does that work with that idea of fear of being like, because we have to use the money one way or the other or invest it one way or the other. Like, and so if I say, well, I'm afraid that I might use the money poorly, like you said, like sometimes a lot of our ideas and things won't work out well. And 
the, the servants used to be specifically afraid that if he tried and messed up, like he would be in worse position. Right, but he, he came to that conclusion incorrectly. Like, the, the master seemed pretty pissed and the guy came back with just one. Like, I think imagine he'd be more pissed if he had nothing. I don't know about that because I think what the master is upset about is realizing that I know what your ability is. This is about you taking my money and investing it. Remember, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to use it and produce a return. Not so the guy can eat. I mean, this is the master's money. He presumably lives at the master's house. He's a steward. You know, he lives there. He works there. I mean, he's got, he's got everything he needs. And the master's saying, I'm entrusting to you some and to you some and to you some. And I know what you're capable of. So when I come back and you tell me you did nothing with it because you were worried about what might happen, you've disobeyed me. I know what you're capable of. That's why he calls them lazy and wicked because it's a disobedience thing. That's why you're my steward. That's why I trust you because I know what you're capable of. I think you can get all of that out of the parable pretty clearly. Where I step out and say it's my opinion that if he had tried to invest it and lose it, that that's probably less bad than doing nothing with it is because that's kind of what the parable's about in the end, but the guy who did nothing with it. I mean, at least if he had tried to invest it and tried to do what the master wanted him to do and it just didn't work out, I don't see that as the master like going, that's the worst thing you could have done. The worst thing you could have done is do nothing. Yeah. Um, I think that Jesus was a smart and well-rounded individual and very easily could have made this the parable of the talents and trusted the guy with five, four, one, and two. And the guy with four then could have done something and then failed. But he purposely does not have someone that failed. I mean, like, it, it's probably something that he did on purpose in my mind is just stressing the fact that it doesn't matter. Uh, like, it's an either or. You do something with it or you don't. And this is good and this is wrong. And so just like in terms of applying it to our own lives, like we have to do something with what we've been given. There's not the option not to, despite even if we're going to fail or not, because the parable doesn't even include that because it doesn't even specifically matter. Like it's not something that he even addresses. So. And why is it so bad not to produce a return? Like what's the problem with not producing a return? It's that the master has expected it of us. That's the reason it's so bad. I mean, he could have just said, I'm happy with how much wealth I have. I'm just going to leave it the way it is. That could have been the parable. But the parable is, I want you to produce a return, which is no different than what Jesus says elsewhere. So that's why disobedience comes at such a high price, because the person's saying, no, I'm going to take what you have given me and hang on to it. And I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And I'm not going to do what's your purpose. It's no different than if we step out and say, Lord, we're just going to live for ourselves. We're not going to do what you want us to do. Jeremy. I think the only thing I disagree with you on is that this is primarily about money. That's that's the only issue because, and that's not even really an important issue, but I think that the main emphasis of this parable has to do with the activity involved. Clearly there's some question of like bringing more people into the kingdom. Like that's got to be something that's going on too as well. Um, which is why I think it's difficult. On the one hand, we don't, I guess, want to say uh, over-spiritualize the parable, but we don't want to minimize it by saying it's just primarily talking about this one thing. Okay, I think that's a, that second point is very fair, because the reason I say it's primarily about money is because it's a parable about a talent, which is money, right? And I use the word primarily. The reason I say it that way 
is because the interpretation of the last few hundred years has got the parable out of one of the most valuable things for us when we study money. It has become about bringing people into the kingdom. And that's important. All the other things are important. But if we take out, like you said, if we minimized it, then we'd be losing a crucial meaning in this. And it really kind of, kind of cripples us when we come to deal with money because a lot of us do not see a responsibility to produce return with money. So maybe I've overstated the case a little bit by using the word primarily, but I want us to not skip over that at all, especially in a series about money. I want us to like see it and almost for the moment exclude the other things so that we can kind of correct a little bit what we did by going too far the other way. That's important. Now you said he only gave one. What if it was one million? By the way, a talent is a, is a large denomination of money. The, the importance is not how much one talent. The importance comes in the fact uh, the difference between getting five and one, or five, two. But if you look around this world, there are lots of people in this world that have different amounts from God, different gifts, different talents, different abilities. I just don't want to miss the point that when God gives us something, a lot of us hold out sometimes and think, like, when I have what that guy has, I'll get involved. In this case, the master's like, no, you get involved with what I give you. Everybody's held responsible to what they've been given. And if you look at right now, like where you are right now, you're held responsible to what you have right now. You may have more later, you may have less, but you're responsible for what you have now. Joe. Um, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'm going to agree with you here. I don't think that it's really about feeling offended or diminished because you have less. I think kind of one of the main points of the parable is to say, look, even though he only had one, um, he was still afraid. He still did nothing. Even though his margin of failure could have been so small compared to the guy who had five but did things anyway, he still, like he still was just stingy with it and didn't do anything. Okay, okay, Phil? Um, I could see someone taking this very easily and say, oh, well, we are all of different ability levels. God just obviously doesn't think very highly of me because I'm not very successful in my life. But you know what? Our value in God's eyes is different than what he's given us what he thinks we can handle. Like, just simple example, take it out of money. You take a pastor at a small church where there's like 20 people. And that's what he does, weekend in, weekend out, 20 people, 20 people. And then you, like across town in Chicago, there's like Willow Creek with 20,000 people. I mean, he could say like, well, God must not think much of my abilities. God doesn't really, really want to give me much more. I mean, look at them. They're growing. They're planting churches. They've got satellites. They've got a ministry. They're like in every country. And there's like me, week in and week out with these 20 people. Right? And that's what I've been given. And the lesson of the parable of the talents is that is what the master expects you to double. Not numerically even, like 40 people. I'm just talking like, that's what you've got to produce a return with. Because that's what he's put into your hands. Even in our workplace environment, even in our giving, even in our life, you can think, well, someday when I'm out of school and I actually have what that guy has, I could see how that guy could give or how that guy could contribute to the kingdom. But this is what I've got. And what if your whole life you never get it? And you think, well, why is that all that God has given me? You know what? That's what God thinks you're able to handle. I mean, we got to look at the world and see that God deals with people differently or gives people differently. It's just obvious. I don't think that that should affect your value. Jason. Um, I know this, like in a workplace, that happens all the time where you know that someone can handle a task, so you give them a task. They handle that task, and so you give them two tasks, and you hand, hand, give the task to the person who has less ability. 
you give them one task, and then they keep proving themselves as being responsible with, the, with what they've been given. The guy with the 10 talents doesn't give back the 10 talents and not have the 10 talents anymore. He has the 10 talents. And then he has 11 talents by the end of the parable because he's been given more because he says, give the one talent to the guy who has 10 talents. So it's like, if you prove yourself responsible with what you are given, whatever that amount is, he's going to keep adding to that. So the one who has, in other words, the one who grabs onto his responsibility and takes, takes that and runs with it, he's going to get more responsibility. And the one who ignores his responsibilities, his expectations of him, is he's going to lose his, the responsibility that he had. That's a fair reading of the parable. But let me like, push this just a little bit further. So we're like get past just this one parable. Because when we read Matthew, we'll be back to it again. We can have this whole discussion all over again. I want to set up a balance, and then we'll kind of leave it here for tonight. The problem with approaching a group about money is that we're on different ends of the spectrum sometimes. So the parable of talents a lot of times is read differently and heard differently and even received differently, kind of depending on where you are and the types that, you know, where you are with money and possession and your responsibility. So on one side, I think there are people that on one extreme are content with the bare minimum in life to get by kingdom. Not just about making money, but about most things, about their productivity, since that's really where the parable of talent comes in. Like, if you could just have food and water in the house every day, and didn't have to pay for it, just showed up every day, you'd probably be totally okay. As long as you were just kind of getting by, everything was fine. And I think the parable of the talents speaks to that extreme a little bit. Because it reminds people that what you've been given, you're supposed to produce a return from. Not just subsist, not just get by, but to actually produce something with it. Again, when we start translating that into real life, that may not mean you're building a bank account for Jesus. It may mean that you're actually working and producing so that you could do some of the things that matter so that when he makes a count and says, what did you do with all the things I gave you? And I mean all the things. Your life and your, your health and all the things that you could put on a list of talents, including the money. What did you do with the ability that you were born into a country where we could relatively make money with some ease? That's one extreme. To speak to that outside of the parable of the talents, Read these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is Paul cautioning about people who just live idly in the kingdom. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and who does not live according to the teachings you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help. He's specifically referencing not because we don't have the right as ministers of the Gospels to receive help from you, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. 
They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Paul is giving counsel that there are some of us that are here, and the parable of talents can speak to us in one way. and remind us that this life has been given to us and everything in it, and the Lord is going to come back someday to make account for what we did in this life. For some of you, a quarter of it has run by already. Then, there's the other extreme. There's some of us, many of us, in the church who are completely consumed by money, materialism, and living for ourselves. Some of us are really good at making money, but none of us seems to get anywhere other than for ourselves because the primary thing is that we're living completely for ourselves. So while some of us are on this extreme, idle and not productive, the parable of talents also speaks to people that are on this extreme who believe that Well, we can just make it, and it's for ourselves. The parable of talents reminds us that it belongs to the master. Now, I think Philip's right. I still have to make the case to you, which I will next week, of why everything we have belongs to the master, why it really doesn't belong to us, or why it isn't our skill and ability that's making the money that lets us do whatever we want with it. So that's something we still have to do, but the parable of talents speaks to that, and so does this. Think of how the Acts Church existed together. Think of how the Acts Church was financed in its original place as the church is exploding. These words are pretty clear to us. Acts chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So for those on this side of the equation who believe that what we make belongs to us, the early church model was exactly the opposite. No, it didn't belong to those people. They actually sold what they had and laid it at the apostles' feet. For those who are in need, these people took care of the need because they recognized that it all belonged to him. And they were able to get over the idea that any return that they made belonged to them. They were returning it this time, actual financial return from land that had appreciated or been inherited, however they had gotten it. They sold it and said, it belongs to the church, take care of the needs. That's something that directly models what's going on in the parable of the talents. Look, here is what you gave me. I've produced this return with it. Here it is. Take it back to the body of Christ to the church as its beginning. Obviously, what we're looking for is somewhere in the middle. And that's what the balance of stewardship is about. Being able to produce returns, but not hanging on to it. Getting away from a place where you say, I don't know that I have any obligation to produce a return for the kingdom. I'm getting by. That's exactly what the one talent steward did. He's still being fed. 
while the master's on his long journey. He's still living as a steward. He's still being taken care of. He's just not producing any return for the master in the meantime. Are we? I'm going to leave the rest of this until next week. Here's what I want to talk about as we go next week to answer kind of Philip's question. Okay, so what does it cost to follow Jesus? Financially. What does Jesus require for us to produce? What's required of a true disciple? What's possible if we actually follow this way? I have to make that case next week. That it's not about a percentage. It's not about some small return. That Jesus is really asking us for everything. Why? Because he gave us everything. And because what belongs to him? Everything. So let's leave it there and come back to it next week. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to resolve the tension that exists in this room because we all come from different places about money. And Lord, in our society, I confess that we've made this such a personal issue that we have strong feelings about. And Lord, it's also an issue that we are very good about justifying. But I'm thankful for all of the diversity of comments here tonight. Lord, sharpen us against one another. Help us not to overstate the case, nor to understate it. Help us not to find ways to do away with your word. But Lord, help us to do your word. And that's very difficult for us, Lord, in this area. And I'm going to ask this week that you work on our hearts as well, including mine. Because no matter how many times I talk about this topic, I look back and I realize how slowly I'm moving towards the standard that you call us to. And I fear like I'm going to run out of life before I move far enough to be able to meet you and make account with you and say, yes, Lord, here is what I was able to produce with all the things that you gave me in this life. So Lord, help us to get to that standard because we don't know how much life we have left to live. We don't know when we're going to meet you. And I want every person in this room to hear good and faithful servant. Pray this in your name. Amen.